Did you see that email I forwarded you from a I, listener about the way we were mauling certain concepts about monopolization and yeah, natural monopoly? It, yeah, and and, and I, had, I was going to do follow-up on this same point. Um, you don't mind this, Kim, do you, if we do a little follow-up from our f- listeners? I, I do not. Okay. Cool, thank you. Um, and, and, and I have to admit that um, I, I didn't intend it to come out this way, but I screwed it up. And this is about natural monopoly, mm. right? And... Uh, and price discrimination, mm. and I think I said something about how monopolists with price uh, with uh, price discriminating power uh, will result in allocative inefficiency. And I had one thing in my head, but you could listen. You know, I, I it's yeah, I just it sounded wrong. Okay. It sounded wrong. It's that whole head mouth connection that is sometimes a challenge. Well, it's the, I, mainly my head connections. I think <laughs> the problem. Uh, I think mainly that. Um, but of course, you know, I guess the idea is, uh, of course, that a uh, a natural monopolist, or even I guess a monopolist with who also is a perfect price discriminator, uh, you will achieve efficiency and. Um, the allocation of benefit there between consumers and the monopolist you know, the may debate. change. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, but of course, I didn't have that in my head. I wasn't thinking of a perfect price discriminator. I was thinking of uh, cable companies who could engage in some price discrimination. Um, and that might move you a little bit closer to efficiency, um, but maybe not exactly the kind that you would want as opposed to, say, a price regulatory scenario uh, where the... Um, you know, the price is set to be a little bit more allocatively efficient than the natural monopolist would set the price, um, which is profit maximizing, supposedly. So I, that was – anyway, what I said was confusing. You kept trying to correct me as the actual expert in antitrust. Um, <laughs> Hardly. But. Uh, yeah, so I think I had one thing in mind and was saying another, but uh, it was confusing. We, so listener Spencer wrote in mm. with, some, with some good thoughts, which maybe we might go into more depth than that maybe in another show where that stuff is, is more relevant. But he had yeah. some, some really good things to say uh, in his email, I He thought. did. And, you know, Spetta was here try- helping us um, with, the, with the range of options that have been used over the many years uh, in response to uh, the existence of uh, so-called natural monopolies, price regulation, um, deregulation in the face of what looks like a certain new kinds of competitive possibility here. It was the fact that wire communications were suddenly facing competition from wireless communications, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, the, it's, it is a, whether it's a natural monopoly or not, uh, the, the fact that you have, um, a durable monopoly, uh, and the regulatory responses that that monopoly uh, prompts, whether it's in the form of price regulation or the form of, different levels of uh, scrutiny uh, performed by different antitrust or antitrust-like enforcement authorities. I mean, there's a range of stuff you could do here, um, and uh, and it's complicated. So when you're in the middle of a heated conversation, like I do this and you do this, I'm sure many people do this, you kind of flub up sometimes yeah, and you I, say, look, I say, I it's say not wrong, a big deal. I say wrong stuff all the time. And, and, you know, any, any <laughs> listeners to this show are going to just have to get used to the idea right. that half we're, of the stuff I say is probably wrong. We're trying our Hopefully hearts in the right place. Though. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but here, here, there's an emotional truth to what I said, even if there was not any actual truth. Well, uh, especially to the degree that you were just spitting venom at cable companies. Oh. So I think that's absolutely right. 
Right. I mean, the, so cable <laughs> companies are the worst, right? And, and, and uh, uh, as we discussed after the show, I, I don't know if listeners know this, but some of the best episodes we've done are the ones where we have, uh, are the ones after we record. It's, uh, yeah, we, we, have, the, we have the best staircase wit, Kim. It, it's amazing. Uh, like, as, soon, and, as soon as we turn it off, it's like amazing things fall out oh, of our faces. Yeah. It's all the things that are go unrecorded. It's all, the, guys, it's all the thoughts. You guys are very witty on recording as well. Well, that's good, I suppose. Well, that's something. Yeah, wit, wit, is, wit is something. But the cable companies can't even design websites that work. You know, the, and they're in charge. Of, yeah, anyway. Let's not, it's yeah, let's not go there this again. Is, this is a happy time. This is a happy time. Is there any more follow-up? I mean, have you heard anything more about, our, uh, about the Peabody, Joe? Uh, no, the, the Peabody still exists, and, mm-hmm. and we are still in the same we're still universe. In the for we're the, we're is still in the same universe that mm-hmm. contains a Peabody Award. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, let the r- listeners know if there's any update on that. We are, as we said before, <laughs> we are up for a Peabody. Right, Joe? Uh, I, there is a sense in which that sentence is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> more than an emotional truth. It is actually true. We are up for a Peabody. That, yes, you can parse I that sentence. I don't know that we've been nominated yet. <laughs> but we are, I think, available for nomination. So. so I think what's great, yeah. really exciting about the fact that Kim is joining us today. Kim Kravik, I think I have that right, yes? <laughs> you do, although I, any pronunciation is actually fine with me. Okay. Um, but Kim Kravik is joining us this week. And what's so great about that is that it's also the, the beginning of Easter weekend. So we, this is our own version of Easter eggs. <laughs> Oh my God. We get to talk about Easter eggs. Now oh these God. these Jeez. Easter eggs you cannot paint. You cannot. You well, I guess you could. You, of paint course, them. you can paint them. They're awfully small, <laughs> which means they're easier to hide. They are. This oh, these like, are very easy to hide. This is like the you know uh, um, the the uh, using human eggs as Easter eggs is kind of the advanced Dungeons and Dragons version. <laughs> It's the expert edition with the larger books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do. I don't think they're as good for an Easter egg roll. <laughs> like if you're doing the White House Easter egg roll on the lawn, you don't probably do not want to use human eggs. Oh, boy. I've never, right. I've never seen them use human eggs. <laughs> I don't that's worth. <laughs> Joe, are you? Are you ready to start the show? I, this, I hey, this is, a, this is about as good as I'm going to give oh, this man. hour, so we, you I better just, enjoy it. I feel like, you know, you know, Kim is a major academic at, at a major institution <laughs> doing very serious work. True. And we have her on and we start, let's face it, we talk nonsense now for, I don't know how, yeah, it's already been five minutes. <laughs> so, uh, but Kim, now I have to say though, Kim, you knew what you were getting into because uh, That's true. Um, you, you, you had a very nice shout out to us on the uh, faculty lounge blog where you are a regular is that right that yeah that's right uh and and we appreciate it you linked uh, uh to every episode well uh, i've been lis- one post i've been yeah. listening to the back episodes i actually didn't know you guys were doing this until you had lisa on and um yeah that was the first i i knew about it i'm sorry for that i would have i would have put up something earlier if i had no nah, we had a we had a kind of a soft launch yeah you say uh, and, and you know, it's just we're just going to keep doing it, keep showing up, keep doing it, uh, keep talking to interesting people and exploring ideas, and seeing if this is uh, kind of testing this out as a medium for you know what we generally do in academics, which is try to create and disseminate knowledge of various kinds. And so I don't know, we'll we'll see how it goes. So far, it's been fun though. We've had a really good time. It's been a lot of fun, and we do appreciate the, the shout out. And um, I will say again, I think like we said on last show, um, you know, you had linked every episode on the faculty lounge and if if people are out there and they and they like the show don't click on every link sit at your desktop computer 
and and listen. Uh, that's like we said last time. That's no way to live. Um, what you want to do if you like the show, subscribe. Get a, get a podcast app for your phone with Android, iPhone, Windows phone, whatever it is. Uh, get a podcast app. Search in there for oral argument. Hit subscribe, and boom, like magic. Every week, um, every there week that is. we record, right. A, 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 it'll just land on your phone. You don't have to do anything. Or so even that, if all you do is use iTunes and you listen on a laptop or whatever, but but to to subscribe and have it be there, I think on a regular basis, that's cool. It's easy. Yeah. So, so. I couldn't find you guys when I searched on Stitcher, which is the one I use. Ah, uh, so Stitcher is works a little bit differently. I think. I think ah. Stitcher you have to join somehow or something, and so Ooh. there are a lot of podcasts I listen to are not on Stitcher either. That's not really in my in my universe. Uh, we linked a, a few different ones last time. And uh, in, 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 in answer to also the kind of what was implied by your question, I'm not sure even how we get on Stitcher if I have to reach out to somebody to do that. Oh. I'll look into it and see if it's easy right. to do. If we have to pay something, <laughs> we may not be able to do it. But, uh, um, but we, we recommended, I think, last time, like Instacast, uh, Downcast, Castro. Castro. Uh, Apple has a free podcast app, which I think was pretty not great when it first came out. A few revisions later, it's okay. It's oh, free. Uh, so that works. Um, okay. And if you like podcasts, you'll want to pay for, for a good one. Um, sure. Uh, good app. Um, not very much. So there are lots of options out there. Uh, okay. I think we're ready to start the show now. Yay. <laughs> um, so, Kim, <laughs> you you know, I, I got your uh, SSRN page linked up and your faculty profile for people to see. I mean, you write about a lot of different stuff. Um and uh, I, re- I went through a few of the things that you've written about, a few of the papers, and uh, the stuff about uh, egg donations and uh, the market for eggs and the antitrust implications from this recent case. You have a piece about that. You've got a piece about forbidden markets, which I guess is an introduction to a book, which was really interesting. And uh, a lot of stuff about um, organ donation markets and and or non-markets as they are yeah so a lot of potential ground that we could cover uh i don't know if you or joe has a particular preference um i think this is over over the uh next uh year or so i, I anticipate maybe 10 chem episodes could where we take go 20 through, yeah, I think it may <laughs> be 20 it may be a mini series uh where should we start where do we start with all this stuff well, i want you know what i want to hear is i want to hear how kim got into this into this topic because she's also of course uh very expert in corporate law and securities law and things that may or may not be related i don't know if in her mind they're related but how did you discover this this um you know this domain of taboo trades and forbidden markets uh, which is the name of the class that you teach at Duke. I think that's the mm-hmm. name of it. Yeah. Um, uh, tell us about how you got into this stuff. Well, um, I, it's, it's funny. To me, it's a natural progression from the work that I've done on more traditional markets, but I recognize that it doesn't look that way to most people. <laughs> um, but I've always been interested in sort of contested or unusual transactions. And in particular, the manner in which the legal system really struggles to keep pace with commercial innovations. And I've also been especially interested in the process by which those transitions sort of move from something being very suspect to being very accepted. And so my first interest in this was, um, you know, more traditional markets, especially futures markets, um, and uh, life insurance or insurance contracts of different types. 
And I think that people forget that those those contracts were those transactions were also highly contested um, in the beginning. And for me, it was interesting to sort of think about how courts went in the early days from really uh, thinking of those as being uh, sort of suspect transactions that were no better than gambling and, and not entitled to sort of any really different legal treatment. To can, being, can I stop you there? Yeah, what, what, of course. Were, were life insurance, uh, was, was life insurance originally illegal? It's against public policy? Yeah. So life insurance sort of, you know, had this double problem um, of looking a lot like gambling and moreover looking like gambling on human life and on death. Uh, and so the the transition by which that came to be seen as a beneficial contract instead of just not only a wager, but a wager on something that was very taboo, death, um, is really interesting. There's a sociologist at, at Princeton, Viviana Zelizer, um, who has written about this. She has a book about it, uh, Morals and Markets, in which she sort of traces this evolution uh, and, I, you know, a lot, it's a sort of, I think a lot of the same issues come up in, you know, these more modern variations of, of taboo trades. And so what led to the, is there, is there some set of kind of demographics or, or something that, that leads to changing minds about that? Because, you know, as you said it, I, that's not something that I've thought about in a while. I mean, obviously there's, there's a pretty clear moral hazard with life insurance um, uh, right. that people know about, but uh, uh, is it? You know, I guess just thinking about it from first principles, you wonder if people would have more of a problem with life insurance in a setting in which life was very uncertain, uh, where death was more common, or is it something we become more comfortable with as living into old age becomes something which is expected and early death being, you know, a somewhat unexpected thing that needs to be kind of protected or hedged against. Uh, right, right. I, I don't, you, you, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's kind of the same conversation people have about the the changing value and in investment in children um, right. o- over the years. And, and so I, I don't know how to think about that. Is that part of the story or is that not part of the story? Yeah, it's interesting. So she also wrote about sort of one of her other books is Pricing the Priceless Child, in which she also writes about this sort of changing value of children, which is uh, due to a lot of things, including, you know, um, sort of changing lifespans and not using children for work anymore. And, but I don't, I don't remember her discussing this particular question in connection with insurance. She might have, and I've just forgotten. Um, but she focuses quite a lot on um, the, the efforts that the insurance industry itself undertook in sort of packaging these transactions as, as socially beneficial uh, as opposed to being just gambling, right? As a as a way of sort of, um, you know, protecting um, survivors and uh, right. a- allowing people to plan for the future, as opposed to being gambling on on death. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because in years uh, past, um, in property, uh, which I teach, I've occasionally taught these um, uh, the, the uh, cases on restraints on marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where a, a testator will 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 give a um, an inheritance to say uh, a daughter or uh, a niece or something, but contingent on their not being married, mm-hmm. and uh, and these are you know have been typically struck down if they're seen as penalties for marriage, mm-hmm. but have been upheld if they are support 
Right. Um, right. And, and so that is a kind of, I don't know if the, if the shift there is, is similar. Um, I don't know, but I mean, you've, you've hit on the part that fascinates me is the extent to which framing matters for these types of transactions. It, yeah, you know, exactly. I see all that through all your work. I yeah, mean, is, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and that to me is really fascinating is how the framing changes and the extent to which people are willing to let go of what they think is a mo- real moral imperative and actually just sort of, you know, shift with the frame. Yeah, because I mean, so I'm thinking, you know, kidney markets, surrogates, uh, selling uh, eggs or, or donating eggs, depending on how you frame it. All of these, mm-hmm. it's like if you just ask someone who hasn't thought about it uh, before, thought, hasn't thought deeply before, is it, uh, do we, should people be able to sell surrogacy services or womb services? Should they be able to sell their eggs to the highest bidder? Should, and there will be a, a kind of a, uh, maybe a gut reaction against, um, right. which is which is I think an in, you know an intense reaction based on a certain framework or understanding about the world. And if you can shift that frame, like with kidney donations, uh, mm-hmm. uh, then people's intuitions change dramatically, don't they? Yeah, and I think that that shift has uh, happened very successfully with egg donation. And I'm going to keep calling it donation, even though, as you know, people are in fact compensated for it. Um, but I mean. If the question is, should people be allowed to sell their eggs? I mean, for, for most people, the answer is, who, as you say, haven't perhaps thought about the question that deeply, the answer is no. But if the question is, is should people who help an infertile couple by donating an egg to them, which is something that's both time consuming and carries some risk, should they be able to be compensated you know, for the time and effort that they've spent on that, then people are more open to compensation. Yeah, more of it. There's an intuitive comfort probably with like a, um, uh, what would it be? Like a, a reliance interest, a right to a reliance interest, uh, like a tort thing, like, you know, that you should be able to receive enough money to to compensate you for, you know, the time you spent, all that, right? But right. the idea that you would get any surplus gains of trade Right. I think uh, that's exactly right. There's this notion of making people whole, but that they shouldn't be allowed to get anything that we're uncomfortable uh, once it's framed as um, just a profitable transaction. Because so, we think it should just go ahead, Joe. Yeah. So you like I wonder. So how would people just to try to push the intuition the other way? So I guess um, if you describe a situation where um, someone is running an, an egg uh, uh, provision business. Mm-hmm. Where they um, they recruit the egg donors, they get the eggs, they pay those donors a payment that is risk related. That um, and let's just bracket that for a second and pretend that could be a meaningful number that does correspond to medical risk and hours worked and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But then um, the egg donors are also shareholders, and the eggs are sold at auction. Uh, with spec sheets on the donor mm-hmm. so that you're out to raise as much cash as you can. And I assume this is perfectly legal, is it not? Well, uh, to, to, it's, there's no currently, there's no prohibition on the sale of a human egg. That's right. There are price restrictions, which is the subject of the suit that you referenced earlier. Now, that's not a legal restriction, But it is a restriction by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, which are sort of the self-regulatory bodies of the industry. Okay. And so if if I'm willing to uh, do without their seal of approval, 
Right. Um, and, and, and that could entail lots of costs, but, but let's say uh, for the moment, I'm willing to do that, right. do without their seal of approval. And I, and I sell this, uh, I set up these auctions and then the auction proceeds are split in some fashion among the investors who have invested with their eggs. Um, I, I guess people might hear that and be kind of horrified by it, right? Yes. Uh, I <laughs> Even without your variation, people are tend to be horrified or at least disturbed by very high prices for organ donors, even when it's not packaged as selling an egg, even when it's packaged as you know, sort of compensating for you for your time, but your time just happens to be more valuable than somebody else's uh, who doesn't have the egg donor characteristics I'm looking for. Uh, people are seem more uncomfortable with that. And it's interesting because from a from the perspective of, uh, for example, the the correlation between uh, characteristics like um, higher educational achievement um, and you're donating this egg. Well, if you have a higher educational achievement, you very well might be paid, for example, a higher salary at your job. And that means time you take away from your job is a higher opportunity cost. You should be paid more, right. shouldn't you? Yeah. So if merely from the purely from the perspective of actually doing what we say we're doing, which is paying a person for their time. Right. People don't have equal – people's costs of time are not equal. That's because right. they have different salaries, they have different, it's a, and some of those characteristics are correlated with something someone might be interested in, in terms of a child they might want to have. I would like my child's genetic endowment to be associated with a higher educational capability. Right. Uh, and would people, don't, I don't think people would be super troubled by that. Maybe they would. Um, well, but, they seem to be super, they seem to be super troubled <laughs> by, uh, by paying for that um, not by receiving it, but by someone paying for it. Exactly, exactly. Um, and you know, the same pricing guidelines that that we were discussing before um, actually prohibit varying compensation based on these types of characteristics. Um, and so, nonetheless, you see through the, especially through private agencies, you know, uh, specifications for egg donors with you know certain educational levels or SAT scores. Um, and it's something that is clearly something that people value. N not just when they're, you know, not just the infertile, the fertile also value these characteristics and reproductive mates. So let, let me try to move to uh, staying, staying with the same example, but um, getting closer to the maybe one of two hearts of the issue that you've alluded to in, in some of your writing, uh, Kim, um, so, so one kind of thing we might be worried about in these egg donation markets are, and, and in kidney transplant markets, so you take, pick your market that you, that people are troubled by are, are the, the kind of concomitant effects of market transactions. And, you know, um, uh, there may be a different, several different ways that, that this is troubling. Um, but another way of looking at the problem is that market transactions, involve um, a different reference frame for under so that what's happening is that people are engaged in one kind of exchange in a domain in which we normally associate that we normally associate with a different kind of exchange right uh, and and so uh, what's disturbing is the the mixing of the two um, 
And and so I can kind of see both in egg donation. We'll make them more precise, and maybe you have examples that make that kind of thing more precise. But uh, in in the egg donation market, on the one hand, paying for characteristics leads to like concerns about eugenics. It con- leads to concerns that people will absorb uh, market signals about what's valuable and will distort people's thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, you know, this is kind of stuff that uh, you know. Uh, Raiden has written about right that people kind of absorb market-based thinking. Imagine like a market in kids, right? And and it's advertised everywhere, and there's all kinds of market speak associated with it, and at you know, like, right. like I said, various advertisements, and and you realize how much it would cost to buy, say, a I don't know, a tall child or a child who's expected to be tall rather than one shorter. And you look at your own kid, and you say, oh, well, this kid is like three thousand dollars less valuable because of you know an inch of height or right. uh, an IQ point or something like that. And maybe we don't want parents to think about their kids that way. And uh, and, and the market provides comparability uh, in domains where we think a lot of things should be incomparable, or at least we don't constantly remind ourselves of the comparability of different attributes. Um, and so maybe that's a harm of, you know, the, whether it leads to kind of eugenic style thinking or what, uh, I don't know. But then the other concern, maybe it's related, maybe this is the same thing, and I uh, am kind of collapsing the distinctions, is that normally when we think about markets and kids, we think about uh, dating markets and people picking out prospective mates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do that. It, it's not that money markets don't play into that because, you know you know, people, you know, having fancy cars and fancy houses and going out to expensive restaurants and buying expensive rings. These are all part of human dating rituals. Uh, but we don't necessarily think that what's happening when people agree to have a child is that they're kind of in, engaged in some kind of weird auction market where they're just paying for the best possible mate along dimensions that matter to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you introduce that, you know, so when someone buys a particular egg, it kind of it introduces a kind of transaction that doesn't normally occur in the market for children, which mm-hmm. I think is part of what was so uh, repulsive to some about kind of, you know, uh, Richard Posner's seemingly kind of honest analysis of, uh, of, of you know, a baby selling market. Uh, right. So I, I don't know if, do you see those? I don't know if I'm even making any sense, but I don't know if these are, are really two different ways of looking at, say, the egg donation market, probably, comp- you know, or if they're really the same, and and whether you think there's any sense to that. I think at least part of what I said kind of recapitulates what you said in the uh, forbidden markets introduction. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, I think they're all really all of these concerns are related, and yet are are worth thinking about separately. Um, and you know, I, they're not ridiculous concerns, although for a variety of reasons, in my mind, they're not concerns that, that warrant um, stamping out the market in, in these transactions. But, I mean, I think you're right that one, one issue that, that comes up, but I think people have a harder time articulating it, is the comparability, um, especially when we're talking about, you know, markets and kids or reproduction reproductive services or or materials now this notion that even though we all might be conscious of the fact that we value different traits differently attaching a price tag to it allows us to see that very clearly in ways that are disturbing to people um and then i think a you know a, a separate but related issue that you you bring up is just sort of the wrong type of valuation, right? People are supposed to um, trade 
sex and reproduction for love, not for money. Um, and, and this is sort of the wrong way of, of valuing those relationships. It's an insertion of money into a place where it's, it's really not supposed to go. Yeah. It's, uh, um, that, you know, so I'm, I'm not one who thinks that, that, that any actual goods are actually incomparable because I think given enough scarcity of the right type, um, uh, people would be willing to exchange anything for anything else. For anything, uh, right. Yeah. Um, but there's some value in keeping that wall. I, someone like Raiden argues, right, for some things. And, and I, when I, I, I use her um, um, articles on uh, uh, non-commodification in, in mm-hmm. a couple of different classes to just bring out some of these ideas, you know, her, so her domino theory mm-hmm. um, is that uh, um, one reason not to allow market transactions is because there are basically two different versions of a good, and those versions can't exist at the same time. Same at the same time, and so uh, for skeptical students, especially, I, I encourage them to think of a truly like take sexual services. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had a, re- a truly unregulated, commodified market in sexual services, would the non-commodified version of sex? really be the same and could it even exist uh in the same way um and to do this you have to imagine not just that prostitution is illegal but that advertisements for various kinds of sexual services are everywhere with prices associated with it you know mm-hmm. as as commodified as we think sex has been you know certainly pornography is everywhere with the explosion of the internet and and so it's it's hard to say there isn't a non that there isn't a commodified um sexuality in our culture but i don't think we've reached you know, it's certainly not like buying milk from the store shelves. Um, and, and so if you really had all that market messaging, could you really fail to evaluate sex in commercial terms? And and if that's not persuasive to people, then think about children uh, and, and baby selling, which may be more so. Right. And um, I also use used Peggy's uh, excerpts from her book and some of her articles in, in thinking about this in the Taboo Trade Seminar. Um, and I mean, you know, to use sex work as an example, you know, there are levels of commodification, which is, is which is pretty much what she says in her, her book, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, in most of the U.S., uh, prostitution is illegal, some counties in Nevada being the exception. But in much of the rest of the world, prostitution is legal. But there are different types of restrictions that keep it as from, as you say, being exactly like buying milk. I think there might be restrictions on advertising. There might be restrictions on the way in which it can be sold. Right. So only in a brothel, um, not on the street, you know, different levels of of regulation that I think. so, you know, commodification is not a, a black-white. Uh, commodification, as we're using that term right now, um, is, yeah, not, right. It is not a black-white black, um, on-off type of thing. And you could, see, you could also see, um, in terms of this introduction of nuance and the fact that, um, I mean, it may be one, it may be one uh, response or refutation of Raiden's point to suggest that um, they, they can all exist together because they already do all exist together because, um, we introduce these nuances. So to return to the life insurance example, I could, I could see, um, <laughs> even in a world where you're perfectly comfortable with there being some forms of life insurance, I could still see people wanting to have a debate about who can insure the life of whom and under what circumstances. So you might right. want to, you might want to discourage forms of life insurance 
being held by a person and let's say a form of life insurance where um, it, it reaches a peak value there uh, well before the person's life expectancy ends actuarially, <laughs> meaning mm-hmm. when they're still young and, mm-hmm. um, and there's no, uh, uh, the clause still pays out even if the person was murdered. Right. Mm-hmm. This sounds like a bad policy to let people sell because it encourages people to take out a hit contract. Yeah. That's kind of the first mm-hmm. kind of um, thing I was worried about, like the, the effects of market transactions, right? If there is a market, how will that, you know, affect behavior? Not it doesn't raise like the other kind of concern you think people might have with it, which is that just this is this is not the kind of commercial transaction. There's something immoral about the commercial transaction. But, itself, but what right? I think one way that I think we respond to this um, and, and fitfully and perhaps stumbling through slowly and painfully, but it seems like one of the responses we have to this again is we we introduce shades of distinction and and gradual we graduate the phenomenon. So. Um, so yeah, there's uh, y- there is sex work, but uh, as as uh, you say, maybe it has to take place in a particular location. Maybe it can't can or can't be advertised in certain ways. Maybe um, and maybe there are informal norms as well. Police do put uh, enforcement resources into dealing with some of the problems, but not some of the other problems. Mm-hmm. With sex work, um, maybe we think even if there's sex work, we think it's really horrible to uh, impress people into it using trafficking across uh, international boundaries where mm-hmm. there might be other kinds of predation going on. So, I mean, you can you can you can introduce variations on the theme that let you sort of get some of what people appear to want because a lot of this is just about revealed preferences, right? It, it you know, in a world where no one was willing to exchange money for sex, there wouldn't be any sex work, not because we prohibited it, but because no one would buy it. Right. But the truth is people do. Right. Some right. people do buy it given the opportunity at certain costs. And I think there's, I mean, there's two different, um, I guess, responses, both of which you've, you've hit on that, that one could make to, I mean, some of the objections to these markets are really just market design problems, right? So um, we might have restrictions, as you say, on who can buy what. Um, you know, when it comes to organs, for example, right, we might um, only have a government payer, right? Um, we might not allow private transactions. When it comes to sex work, we would certainly have restrictions on age and, and you know, other things. And then there's also this sort of social categorization, right? So for the notion that, you know, for example, paid sex and sex, um, you know, as, you know, in, in, for love, that they, they can't coexist. We have so many variations. You know, again, it's just not black and white, right? So there are prostitutes, there are dates, there are mistresses, there are wives, there are, you know, there are endless variations. And, and people... Right, can you um, hold on? I'm trying. I'm trying to write all these down. Hold on a second. What, 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 <laughs> I didn't realize there were so many categories. It's a shocking revelation in this episode. <laughs> and uh, I think people go to great lengths to signal both to the to the people in the relationship and to the outside world uh, which type of relationship this is, right? Um, and it doesn't mean that money never changes hands in any of those relationships. In fact, money changes hands in most of those relationships. 
Um, but it changes hands in, in different forms, right? So, you know, the explicit cash for a particular sex act might be what we think distinguishes a prostitute from say a mistress who might be paid, you know, you know, maybe you pay for his or her apartment, um, you know, other expenses without any precise quid pro quo. Or even um, just so, attention, even just attention. I mean, you know, the, right. there's a there's an exchange of things that each party wants. Sometimes right. those things are expressible or or obviously exchangeable for for money, in this, which just means that they're fungible. Sometimes right. they seem not fungible, but in fact, you know, uh, providing them takes away, you know, it comes in opportunity costs, and there's kind of a hidden fungibility of them. But I right. wonder too, like uh, to to take it over to markets for kidneys, which you've you've written about. Um, which is super interesting because, uh, and that's technically prohibited, right? The sale of your organ to someone else. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Unlike eggs, which is, that's not technically prohibited, but the sale of your kidney to someone else would be technically prohibited. That's right. The sale of, of your egg is not prohibited by law, but again, the self-regulatory organizations take the position that the payment should reflect compensation for, time, inconvenience, and risk. It should not be a payment for the eggs themselves. Right. So, Much better said. And I'm, and of course, they're also artificially suppressing it um, uh, yeah. to, <laughs> right. at the level of $10,000. Right, right. Um, uh, but but fair enough uh, that there that is a that is a form of regulation um, that a payment above a certain amount uh, is prohibited. Now, the right. reference transaction in kidneys, I get, from what I gather, uh, is um that is someone that you know or uh who cares about you uh giving up a kidney because they can live with one and you're receiving it and so purely you might call it altruism although you know or warm glow whatever the thing is that they're getting is not money that's that's and, exactly right and you've so this is kind of a uh, a simultaneous donation you know uh where you know I give uh you a kidney because I know you and it happens all at one time comes out of me goes into you uh, and then you describe a, an iteration of that where, uh, because, you know, just because I have a kidney and you want a kidney doesn't mean I can give it to you because they are maybe biologically incompatible. And, um, and, but maybe there's another pair, uh, of, uh, you know, a, I want to give you a kidney and someone else wants to give someone else a kidney. We are both incompatible with the, with our target, um, our target, uh, what, what is the word I'm looking for? Don't recipients, want? recipients. Oh, uh, don't Okay. But we, um, if we could exchange crossways, so I can give my kidney and it's compatible with uh, the person that I don't know, and you and the other person can give a kidney to you because they're compatible. So we have four people in this transaction. I'm trying to describe a diagram <laughs> on the air. Uh, but instead of like each of us donating to our targets, uh, we can't do that because they're incompatible. We could exchange. Um, so I can give a kidney to someone I don't know, and you can give a kidney to the person I wanted to give it to that you don't know. And it all works out in the end. And we do that all at one time. And uh, two people who needed a kidney have it, and two people who wanted to give a kidney gave them, but just to the other people, and it and it works out great. Right. Um, and then you iterate, you 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 describe a scenario from there, which involves longer chains. But um, so that I I I take it that most people, and we can, I want to go into that in a minute. But um, <clears throat> I take it that uh, most people would not consider the second the, the well the first iteration of the reference transaction to depart too much from that reference transaction, right? I mean, I think 
it like hits the ear as oh that makes sense like the four it, people sounds as good as the two people like the two yeah. people sounds really great it sounds like a family movie the right. second <laughs> one which is four people sounds like a family movie which had some fun stranger meetings moments in it and but was a good movie like morally a good movie right right there are no villains in it there's nothing creepy about it right right, right. Yeah. but but and then what's next i mean you you seemed like you were going somewhere else well i mean i, I the well, so so is that one step down the road toward, let's suppose at the end of this very slippery slope is this thing which is supposedly really horrible, and I'm not convinced it's horrible, maybe we can talk about it, which is uh, that people, uh, since we all have two kidneys, we all have a store of value in us, something that other people want, uh, and we just have an unregulated or regulated but uh, market in kidneys where um, if someone wants one, they can offer me uh, money for my working kidney and, and they can buy it. That would be the the more fully commodified, although as Kim points out, um, there are degrees of commodification um, in any market. And so there may be some regulations here, but basically it would be uh, uh, the market would be open to voluntary transaction in kidneys and, and people could buy and sell them. And and hopefully that would increase the supply of kidneys that and lives would be saved. And, and that would be a good thing. The market would serve the salutary purpose of, of allocating kidneys efficiently. Um, but short of that, uh, um, more commodified version is this more complicated chain because one so, so the 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 hallmark movie episode where there are four people and we have this somewhat intermediated exchange um in order for that to work you have to have people who are you know you have to have that the four people match you'd have to have people match kind of crosswise instead of to the intended target and they have to donate at the same time mm-hmm. um but maybe we could have, you know, for each person who who needs a kidney, they each have a donor who's willing to donate. But, of course, the chances that they match may not be, you know, are not 100%. Um, and so maybe we have, like, 10 people who need kidneys, 10 people who want to give kidneys. We don't know exactly when each will be best positioned to have the kidney at that time. So we don't know when the best time to donate is, and we don't know, uh, and, and each one doesn't match. And so maybe we can kind of start the chain by someone donating a kidney to someone else. Uh, the person who receives it, well, they're, they're, uh, the donor who intended to donate to them now owes someone else a kidney. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the other donors in that market are willing to give it up at any time. And so you describe it as kind of paying it forward, Kim, right? That, um, that anybody who's in this kind of chain, should uh, any of the donors in that chain uh, may be called upon to donate at any time. And the recipients will receive a kidney uh, mm-hmm. at, at the right time. Um, I don't know if that makes. I don't know if I've made sense, Joe. You're looking at me kind of quizzically. Well, I'm just wondering what this is all about. Like, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to come up with a way to make more kidneys available to more people in need without engaging in just a full-on free-for-all? Yeah, I mean, I mean, right. The ideally, is that what we're trying to do? Ideally, uh, yeah. So yes. we're restricting the market to situations in which. <laughs> There is one recipient and one donor who wants to give to that recipient. And we're trying to iterate from that market to a point where, uh, because, you know, a lot of people. Why not just wrestle with the question? Why not just have a, f- a, f- a f- commodified, well, let's, fully let's, commodified let's, marketing let's, kidneys? Let's start with the problem of the chains. Cause, uh, uh, but I'm, will- I'm willing to assume that very smart people like Kim and you. And, and I'll just watch, but you very smart people can figure out a way to do this pairwise. Because it's just a computational problem. 
and a trust problem, and we can figure out ways. To well, do there's that. a trust, and Kim, you've written about this kind of the gift model and the contract model, and how neither kind of works here, right? Um, yeah. With these chains, there's a huge problem in just getting the chains to work, oh, and, so it, and the I'm reason too- I go here is because this is a market which is further down the road, right? So, Kim, you said that you know markets have a range of the spectrum of commodification. Yeah. And the chain model kind of gets us closer to the more unimpeded market, but it is still clearly like people can only enter that chain if they have a donor who wants to give to them. And so it still maintains some tie to a sense of altruism. It's just that the altruistic acts are now directed towards strangers in a more disaggregated way. I don't know if I said that right, but yeah, uh, no, Tim, I, yeah go ahead. Uh, no, I think you did. And I, I mean, th- to me, these, um, these transactions that are in the right. So if we think of this as a spectrum, right. And on, at one end of the spectrum is the altruistic donor. And I would actually define altruistic donor differently to me. An altruistic donor is a non-directed donor. Somebody who comes forward and says, you know, I just want to help any sick person who needs my kidney. I don't care who it is to me. One step removed from that is actually me saying, I want to give a kidney to my husband um, because I don't want him to die, right? Both because I, I love him and I derive benefit from having him be alive. I, I may derive financial benefit from having him remain alive. I think to me, these are two different situations. And it is to me a bit misleading to think of most organ donation as being, quote, altruistic, because I think it's not altruistic in the sense that, that you know, in the pure sense of that, that term. Um, and then, and then, you know, at the, at the other end of the spectrum is just a free market. People can go on eBay or wherever, um, and, and sell and buy kidneys or, or other organs. Um, and then there are the kid, the the kidney bay, kidney bay, bay. I'm going to register that right now. (laughs) Right. Or, or flesh list instead of Craigslist. It'll just be flesh. I think you, I'm pretty sure that one's taken Joe. (laughs) And you might get a different target audience than the, than the one you really have in mind. (laughs) I think I think maybe so. <laughs> um, but you know, in between those two extremes of the true altruistic non-directed donor and um, kidney bay uh, are are all these interesting variations. And and to me, I think they're they're more interesting um, for two reasons. One is just theoretically, I think they're it's fascinating um, how how far one can push the altruistic model. Um, without sort of breaking the model, um, you know, how, how do we do that? How do we frame it? What, what, what is acceptable to people and why is very interesting. Um, and it's also, I think, more practical. Um, you know, we might, many of us might think that, that um, markets for, for organs is, is a positive thing, um, but we are definitely in the minority. And it's, it's just sort of not going to happen anytime soon. Whereas I think there's real hope for um, for changes at the margins, things that are you know just a little bit further away from the altruistic ideal, but not what we think of as a market that people will find acceptable. And if that produces more um, the do- in this example, if that produces more donations of kidneys that help people medically in need of them, then so much the better, right? right. If you if if you take the repugnance and disgust that appears to be a fact on the ground as a given, uh, and say that's what will prevent in any time any recent 
uh, projection of the future, we're not going to have free markets in organs like kidneys. So, um, fine, put that aside. What can you do if you take the repugnance and revulsion seriously and say, well, push out on the boundary of the thing everyone thinks is okay, like the altruistic donation or the interfamily donation? Because as you say, it's not altruistic in the same sense, but I think most people think it's also not a kind of coarse trade for personal gain right. to give it to a sibling, for example, um, then how how can we get further down the road of more people getting more kidneys that they need? Right. So what have you learned that's generalizable about 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 that? Where, where are the boundaries that you can push out and make some progress, either in kidneys or in other things, that, that seem to uh, respond sensitively to the existence of these things like um, repugnance and disgust? Well, so I think most of the, you know, most of the action is with kidneys. Um, you know, that's, that's most of the people on the waiting list. And because, because you can keep people alive on dialysis, there's, uh, and because, and because living donors can, can donate a kidney with relatively little risk um, to themselves, there's just a lot more possibilities with kidneys. So, you know, most of the innovations do, I think, involve um, kidneys. And most of the innovations are variations on the kidney pair donation model, right? The simple swap of, you know, I, I want to give to someone that, that I know and love, you want to give to someone that you know and love, but neither of us is compatible with our loved ones. So we'll engage in a swap. Um, there are variations on that 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 I think will both be socially acceptable and legally acceptable um, under well, that is under nota even even as it's currently written and, and that's uh, so that's that's kind of what I wanted to drill down on a little bit because that's the reference transaction is the one that you and Joe describe the, the I'll, let's just call it the reference transaction this is the I give a kidney to my loved one right. people understand that in that domain. That is the, uh, uh, the the transaction to which we will refer and we are morally comfortable with. Okay. And then the swap that you describe, you know, where Joe wants to give to, to his sister and I want to give to my brother, but we're incompatible. And so I give to his sister and he gives to my brother and we're all happy. Uh, that That doesn't seem to depart too much from the reference transaction because it seems like the same kind of thing, the same kinds of motivations, right? Right. And so then we extend that further to the chains that you've uh, written about, where there are 10 people, each of whom wants to engage in the, uh, or 10, 10 donor recipient pairs, each of whom wants to engage in the reference transaction, but each of which is uh, incompatible. Uh, but there's some, com- there's a compatibility matrix between all 10 of them where all these things could kind of happen. Mm-hmm. And, and now we aren't constrained to doing it at the same time because there are enough people who want to do it. And, and, and I think importantly, we don't even know who all the people are at the time we begin this transaction, right? Different. Oh, because, because the chain isn't necessarily, it doesn't have to terminate. Exa- exactly. And so, um, you know, we may know the first few steps, but we may not, we may not know um, all of the, all of the participants at the beginning. And that's, that's different. Just sort of, you know, uh, culturally, structurally, if we're thinking of, I can't remember what the, what the um, metaphor was that you used earlier, but you know, the sort of family movie or whatever. Um, Right. So, I mean, the, the need chain is more of, um, you know, we're going to play a movie over and over again and different people will pop in and out to watch it, but we don't know who, who all of them are yet. So 
Um, it's, it is arguably a little less personal, right? And one could therefore be more troubled by it. But, but I think most people are not. Yeah, and that what's interesting is that in terms of the reference transaction, these are just like people who come into it wanting to engage in the reference transaction, and at some point they'll be called upon to give up their kidney, which will go into another person, and there will be some kind of reciprocation at some point, uh, but not necessarily from the from from the recipient's you know intended donor. Um, the problem comes in, so so you know, so this seems like well, maybe people are comfortable with this because it seems like. Yes, it's a step removed from the swap, but basically the participants in the market are all people who want to give for the reference transaction reasons. So this kind of reference transaction morality is going on. But then there's this problem when people renege. Right. And then you have to decide, well, we're going to contractually obligate people, obligate the the donor and the donor-recipient pair who come into the chain. Right. Are we going to contractually obligate them to give up the kidney when it's needed? And then it starts to look, you know, as you write, no court is going to necessarily issue an order forcing someone to give up a kidney. Right. Uh, but that looks to be maybe a step beyond, uh, even though the morality of the uh, of the entrance into that market seems to mirror the morality of the reference transaction. There seems to be something different once we get to that non-terminating chain where people can renege. And I don't know how to solve that problem, and I and I think you hint at it in that article, but I don't. I didn't see like what the answer was. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that we have an answer. Um, I mean, reneging is something you know. It's it's not common, but then again, need chains aren't common either, right? I mean, we're you know, this is right now. These these types of interventions are not going to come. They're not done at a level that will come even close to you know satisfying the the. Um, kidney deficit that, that we have right now. Um, but I mean, I think it's a tricky thing, right? Um, it's the more you, the more you, if there's, if there's nothing to stop people from backing out, then the chains fall apart. Um, they really, I mean, they depend on trust. The, the, but the, the longer you make them, the, the, the longer the time gap is between um, transplants, all of these things make, uh, make it much more tenuous and, and I think raise the risk of, of people reneging. One thing I wonder about is, um, well, okay. So f- a few things, um, I, there's an alternative to ordering the person to, you know, a, a court order to appear at the hospital to be um, to have your kidney extracted. I agree right. with the intuition. If let, the intuition let me just is, say that I can totally see Judge Joe ordering exactly. <laughs> that. not, I can totally so, see it. So not true. Um, but but let's and let's all take as read that uh, that that uh, that order would never be entered, and no one would take seriously any suggestion that it should be. Uh, but but um, I do have an alternative, which is um, people agreeing that. Uh, that if they uh, withdraw uh, from an agreed willingness to donate at some later point in time, um, that their withdrawal will be publicized. Right. In other words, by name with their image in a in a public in a widely available publication, um, they will be identified as a person who withdrew from an agreement they had made to provide an order. So, but and I want to talk about that alternative possibility in a minute. But what I want to do first is. Um, the the thing that's uh, motivating me to make that suggestion, and the thing that I think is that I've been thinking about as you and Christian have been talking, is so so much of this seems to be about the self 
and the mirror to the self that these things hold up, right? Mm-hmm. So there seems to be a, a boundary where we don't want to think of ourselves in certain circumstances, we don't want to think of ourselves as the sort of people who would do X. Mm-hmm. And and so what the lines we're looking for are the lines that let us keep living the life where we aren't the kind of person who would do X. Right. So we don't want that mirror held up to the self that would and, – and some of the disconnects or you can imagine creating dramatic circumstances where you, you, you would say, oh, well, per, of course the person got angry when you turned and offered the money for that because <laughs> that suggested that you viewed them as fundamentally different from the way they view themselves. Right. And that's the beginning of the the sort of the breach in the relationship. Um, so it, it just seems like to me, listening to all this, it seems like we're we're ultimately we're talking about our self images and the degree to which we're comfortable uh, with uh, the with paid exchange, the exchange of X for money, as the fundamental way that we get to new states, new states of affairs. Um, and I am sensitive to the notion that, um, you know, the market, maybe this is a little bit too Michael Sandel, but, but you know, that, that money, exchanging money for X as this sort of universal corroding phenomenon, the universal solvent that just destroys human life ultimately, um, is sort of a, it's sort of a dystopic vision. And I'm, and I'm not unsympathetic to that fear. Um, but but if we could go back to, to my my idea about pu- publicizing, would that be an equally odious uh, way to respond to someone's withdrawal? Do you think? Because it seems very coercive. Yeah. So to uh, to many people, it is much more odious. Um, you know, as I presented this paper to different audiences, including audiences of of transplant professionals, and sort of you know tried to tried to talk to them about you know. Okay, people are going to renege. You know that's you know no, but none of us want that. What what would make you comfortable um, as a solution to that? And the pub the public the publicizing of of people backing out was was very uncomfortable to to. Mi- oh, so that was brought up. Yeah. that was brought up as a possibility. Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, okay. because it's you know it's a, a traditional shaming device, which um, right. which we know can be very effective and maybe in some cases too effective. I guess might be the concern here. Um, it just um, I would say that was even less popular than than monetary damages. Interesting. That's okay. really interesting because of course Joe's suggestion. I, I think it's. It's finely tuned to the expectations of their participants and the morality of their transactions. And it, it is, doesn't commodify it. Well, it is like what, what you're doing when you enter that chain is promising and representing yourself as maintaining a certain solidarity with others in the chain, right? right. And so what is the natural remedy for someone who is presents a front of solidarity and then reneges on that? Solidarity is to make sure everyone knows they they declared themselves apostates from the exactly. community that they had joined. They did not stand with those right. That seems to be well tuned to the problem. Whereas monetary damages seems to be at cross purposes with you know because it, it wasn't. Although you know, like we said earlier, it, it, fundamentally you know I do think that everything given enough scarcity is fungible. Um, this was not the this was not that kind of market this was a market in trust and solidarity and you need some kind of response to right. uh defection that addresses that right right 
<laughs> what were they worried about when they expressed concern that that shaming wasn't a good idea? Well, so here's my impression. And I mean, I think we, or I at least, don't know a whole lot about the instances of reneging um, because not all of them have been publicized. Some of them have been written about in medical journals, but but not all. Mm. Um, but I mean, I think I think the first thing is that very few people, it's my sense at least, that from, from reading this and talking to others, that, that most of the people that renege do not just say, oh, thank you for the kidney for my wife. She's doing great, but I've changed my mind. Right? That's just not the way that it's, it's framed. It's usually framed as changed circumstances of some sort. They could be, uh, they, they could be health-related or they could be economic um, or um, just this notion that someone is incredibly afraid, right? That they... Um, now, and we might say, well, they should have thought of that before, but, but, but they didn't. Now the time is upon us. Right. And there's this notion of, of really, right, if it really would be this effective, then you're still forcing someone into a transaction or, or coercing, right? I mean, I usually put that in scare quotes, but, but you can't see that from, oh, from, from, uh, from this end. Um, <laughs> you know, coercing someone into, a tra- into donating an organ when they don't want to. And the entire model is not based on that. The entire model is based on people saying, this is something I want to do. Even, I, I've got- uh, sorry, even when you're donating to a family member, you know, transplant professionals are, are supposed to, and I think do, screen out people who appear to really not be on board with it. I, I wonder if there's not another uh, n- kind of norm here at work, which kind of is is another layer of, of differing views of these transactions, and that maybe in the medical community, confidentiality is an incredibly strong norm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and these chains are, are, are not only, you know, unusual in in market speak, but they're unusual in medical speak, right? Uh, because of the way they bind different patients who don't know each other together, right? Uh, and so, you know, not only do we not know how to think about these problems, but those in the medical community actually engaging and you know actually doing these transplants, they probably don't know how to think about it either. And no matter how you try to enforce mechanisms of uh, of trust that enable people to do these kinds of things, it, it's going to run counter to a lot of our intuitions right. uh, on each side of this. Right, right. Yeah, and, I, and you know, the voluntariness idea, that's true. I mean, anything that uh, – it, it's true that shame isn't as coercive perhaps as, as, you know, an order that someone appear at the hospital for the extraction of their kidney. But um, anything that even has a whiff of coercion – that it is, you know, putting your the parts of your body to the use of another. Right. I mean, it ought to be deeply disturbing right. <laughs> to everybody, given the his, given human history. Right. Right. Um, and so I could see why someone saying, "Look, it's just you coercion is just something you cannot introduce at any level." In which case, the it seems to me this worry about people withdrawing their consent later um, is something that uh, I mean one one way you could respond to it is to say um, that the feeling of personal failure uh, that a person might experience when they withdraw, that's punishment enough, mm-hmm. um, in a sense, uh, and because uh, they, they probably will feel some self-disappointment. And beyond that, the, all you can do is just try to work through whatever fear they have. And if in the end of the day, they, they simply can't bring themselves to do it, you know what? None of us are perfect. Right. 
and no, and no system is perfect. Right. Uh, so if you bring in more kidneys than you were bringing in before, because peop- you've constructed this solidarity that that allows you to grow the circle of donors and donees in an effective manner, uh, that's good. Right. And and the fact that some people will withdraw isn't isn't perfect, but then nothing is. So right. And I, I you know, I think that. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe the day will come when we see, you know, sort of need change everywhere. But but right now, this seems to be a, a limiting principle on them. Um, you know, they doing shorter chains is safer. Um, doing things closer to simultaneous is safer, you know, just in terms of, of preventing people from backing out. Um, and so one doesn't sort of capture all of, I think, the perhaps the theoretical benefits of, of long time extended chains because of that. I've got one more topic. Cool. Um, yeah, we can't take up too much of Kim's time. So (laughs) no, no. uh, And I, I just, uh, I mean, this could, I, this could go on for hours and hours as far as I'm concerned, but, um, but yeah, what's your topic, Christian? Oh, it will. This is our the listeners, of course, are hearing the edited version. This is, we're into, this is three hours, 25 minutes so far <laughs> by, my, by my clock. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about military service. Ah, mm-hmm. interesting. Um, and I think it's no, you know, meaning voluntary and conscripted or well, what? that's, that, that's, that's the question. Like, you know, so, uh, it, I think it approach, it, it hits at another side mm. of, of, of this problem, uh, or the, the problem of kind of filling societal needs in areas in which we are naturally uncomfortable. I say naturally, according to our baseline, uh, uncomfortable with uh, ordinary markets. Um, and I, you've read Guido Calabresi's Tragic Choices, mm-hmm. probably. So, I mean, he's been over a lot of these issues in, in, the, in that book. Um, and this is an example I saw that you used in, I forget which article it was, uh, and that and that he certainly used, along with kidneys and childbearing. I mean, those were his three big examples and tragic choices. Um, but the basic problem is this. You have, uh, um, let's just assume it's wartime to make it, you know, easier. Mm-hmm. Um, we need people to fight in the war. Um, everyone wants to take advantage of the benefits of defense. Um, but obviously, you know, not everybody wants to take the risk of being shot down on the front lines. Uh how is the society going to decide which, and we don't need everybody on the front lines, mm-hmm. let's suppose. Uh, how are we going to decide who serves and, and who stays at home and does uh, other, other tasks? Um, and, you know, his description in that book, and he does this with, with kidneys as well, and it's been a long time since I've, I've read it, yeah, um, is that society basically, that, that basically what's going on is there's kind of a, there's a kind of scarcity which is operating. That's that there are incommensurable values which are pointing towards different allocation schemes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say incommensurable, what I mean really mean is conflicting, that they can't all be satisfied at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so what typically happens is, is uh, we choose one set of values and then one set of policies pursuant to those values. Mm-hmm. And over time, we get a number of cases which seem immoral because, of course, the hidden value, the value which was not vindicated in the last uh, change, um, is being transgressed. Mm-hmm. And over time, people demand reform. And eventually, that hidden value is vindicated through some dramatic reform. Mm-hmm. And some other value, which you know had been taken for granted, is, is thereby uh, subsumed. Mm-hmm. And so what actually happens is that 
So you we just cycle, cycle through. We cycle through these values constantly. You know, it's like, and the, that, that's inevitable. It's the Battlestar Galactica no theory of uh, no matter which choice you made first, right? You will have this suppressed value problem. You'll have the suppressed value problem, and you know, he, he describes this in. I think typically optimistic terms that the like the, <laughs> that the morality and value of a society is in the striving. That's the phrase I remember. I don't know if it's accurate. Like it's in the the striving to to be better as a people. But we see this in military uh, conscription, right? That that uh, um, uh, whether it's being able to pay to get out or doing it randomly or having a quote unquote all volunteer service, where what that really means is that we're offering a certain kind of pay. Uh, that predictably leads to certain kinds of uh, of people in military service, and we make distinctions between officers and other kinds of uh, participants that does more of that job. Uh, but whatever allocation scheme we choose is going to vindicate some values, and then uh, we could have a universal service norm, as is done right, in some as countries. Israel does, and right, right. Uh, um, with religious exemptions and blah blah blah. So, well, and that's a huge, it's that's a huge, a huge, problem, right? a huge problem in Israel mm-hmm. right now. Yep. The debate over this. Um, now, now, I know that you've talked, I forget which article it was, uh, Kim, maybe it was in the same introduction in Forbidden Markets where you talk about uh, military service as an example of, I think it was in the context of of this, uh, of pointing out um, people's discomfort with using market transactions in domains where that is not the typical mode of allocation and choice. Yeah, um, I think it was in the, the introduction to a volume on, I think it was called Show Me the Money. Um, okay. making, yeah, making markets exactly. and yeah. forbidden exchange. And that's exactly it. Yeah. 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 And so, um, I was just using it as one of, of several examples, um, of way of how our norms, I mean, I think the point I was, was trying to make with that specific example was perhaps in the context of, um, sort of the, the variability in, in time and place, right? We think of these things as real moral imperatives. Um, and yet they're very, they're very historically and very culturally specific often. Um, and, you know, so we can see that certain, certain transactions that were taboo at one time become normal and vice versa. Um, and sort of the ability to um, sort of, you know, sell um, or, you know, sort of buy yourself out of conscription um, is, was, is a, an example that is sometimes invoked um, for that. And and I guess you know, similar to that, I guess the um, it, hold on well, invoked invoked for what it, because it used to be viewed as perfectly okay yeah. and it now is viewed as somewhat problematic. Yes, exactly. If not deeply deeply problematic. deeply problematic, and I mean, and I would say that we, I mean, it's an it's an interesting thing that you brought out about how um, you know you can't satisfy all the values, and so you know often we're, we're picking one. But I think that what sometimes happens over time is that we forget, in fact, that there were many values, right, that we, we could have chosen an allocation system um, that furthered some value. We can't further them all. We pick one. And I think we, we sometimes forget that, that we did pick one, right? And um, organ, I mean, organ donation is an example. The, 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 what you ref, were referring to is the reference transaction, right, a loved one, usually a family member. <laughs> I hear someone's right. dog. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Darcy. that's Darcy. Oh, okay. She appears on every episode. <laughs> yeah, she appears in many, many episodes. Yeah. Um, the the reference transaction that we've been talking about um, privileges thick relationships, right? It privileges people who have, you know, close friends, but usually family members who are willing to to donate on their behalf. Um, and there right. might be a lot of reasons that people don't have those thick relationships, um, and those people are disadvantaged by 
by the current system, and maybe that's okay, but it is a it is a choice, right? And so, um, Glenn Cohen has actually um, had made this argument in a, a paper he's he's producing for a volume I put together called Organs and Inducements, um, where you know he says you know we really sort of take the status quo as as the baseline and we judge the morality of all other allocation schemes by reference to that, but really right. we should bear in mind that the current that the status quo actually you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't, it satisfies a particular um, set of set of priorities, but not all of them. And we, we could choose a different set. Yeah. And, and uh, just to bring it back to conscription, I think, you know, our system now is one of, and I say, quote, unquote, voluntary service. And right. we feel like the value of choice and autonomy is, is, um, is being vindicated, right? And, and, and for a lot of people, you can't imagine, uh, or at least for, you know, uh, um, maybe during peacetime. I'm, I'm not sure exactly when this happens, but you can't uh, um, imagine another system that is more fair until you start to see that system break down along some value that becomes very apparently, um, uh, what's the right word? I mean, it's not disgraced, but degraded, right? Uh, and And so, you know, maybe it's that we start to understand that People without uh, um, that the military maybe is increasingly populated with people with without great prospects, mm-hmm. uh, and, and um, so if it's their main route of social mobility in a socioeconomic right. status sense, mm-hmm. right. suddenly it seems a little less savory right. to say, "Oh, it's all volunteer," and that means it's just about pay. And, and just to be clear, I'm not making that claim right now. I understand, I mean, nor am I. But I'm pointing many, out this right. is if it, yeah. if it were that, then you, your perception of it would change. Would change, and then and, and indeed there is a uh, uh, there are a lot of voices out there calling for something closer to universal service in the United States. Um, and that would, of course, vindicate the value of kind of shared sacrifice mm-hmm. among uh, people of all walks of life. But it might subsume other values like choice and autonomy, that people should have different conceptions of how best to serve uh, their country. And, um, uh, and But if you choose that, then, of course, uh, you're down to try to who's going to do this job, which is a, you know, a dangerous job, one that um, people won't always choose. So, you know, there is... Uh, uh, the essence, I think, of a tragic choice, to use Calabresi's term again, is that it's a a choice that no matter how you make it will uh, leave certain values in tatters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe kidneys are, I think kidneys are, are, are the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, if there's a fully commoditized market in kidneys, there will be problems. Uh, even if you create some kind of voucher system so that, you know, kidneys are accessed by need. Um, but sold by, you know, people's tolerance for giving up kidneys, uh, you're still going to have problems with, uh, that allocation, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, you know, the thesis of that book, and I don't know if you agree, is that there's basically no way to quote unquote solve these problems. I hate saying quote unquote. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, but, but, you know, there's no way to, and I, I hate doing air quotes too, I guess. So I don't know how to say it, but, you know, there's no way to solve the problem for all time. Um, maybe the best we can do is kind of, iterate among these things to make sure that values don't become lost. Yeah, I think, or at least be cognizant of the values we're favoring over other values, rather than thinking um, that sort of, you know, this is some, this is, this is a moral imperative and all deviations from it are immoral. Um, And we may, we may ultimately decide that, that we're not comfortable with the trade-offs that it has, that we have to make to move away from the status quo but we should recognize the trade-offs that we are making, even when we're talking about the status quo. 
let me ask you this. Just I think I know what you'll say, but uh, just to uh, push a little bit, is that what we want to do? Is there no value in stability and then just, you know, maybe among academics, maybe maybe that's the right group to kind of keep the old values alive by agitating at the edges, but that there is some value in just complete social acceptance of the reference transaction in a good until it gets to the breaking point, at which point maybe academics or policymakers are consulted and we switch to another value. I mean, is there stability in the myth that um, that this is the moral way to approach this problem? Yes, but I think that it's it's worth constantly thinking about whether there are less harmful ways of trying to trying to address our fears and concerns um, with these transactions, right? I mean, and in in part, these are these are new debate. These, these debates are coming alive in some ways because of changes in technology, right? Um, the ability to keep people alive longer in the case of, of kidneys, for example, the, the ability to keep people alive longer on dialysis, the ability to ship kidneys, right? So that, um, you know, you know, it's just sort of expands the universe of people you can transplant improvements in the algorithms that um, allow us to match people better. These are all things that opened up opportunities that sort of weren't there before. And whenever, whenever you have these new opportunities, then you're going to have tension as people propose new things that these, that these, innovations have allowed um, that are not consistent with the way we've been doing things. And and I think that's the point then when we have to go back to the way we've been doing things and try to understand why we did them that way, right? What is it that we're trying to preserve and is it worth preserving given the trade-offs? And the technological change issue, I mean, that's certainly true in the assisted reproductive technology space where You know, there was a time when you just couldn't harvest people's eggs, couldn't get sperm, you couldn't freeze all this stuff, combine it later, blah, blah, blah. Right. I mean, there's just a bunch of questions you never had to answer before. And I think, let me stick just, up Just for to it. correct you, Joe, there was never a time when you couldn't get sperm. <laughs> but but I, I go along with everything Fair else enough. that you said. Thank okay. you, Monty Python. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, uh, so um, the... the um, the the notion that so here's why I think it's always good to keep the the contested nature of the stuff and the suppressed value problem uh, close to the surface mm-hmm. uh, is that one thing it could do and I maybe this is just me being at some there's some sense in which I always have to be optimistic or I just don't get out of bed so the, maybe the way <laughs> it can be optimistic is say look what you can do you can't you can't you can't um, quote solve the problem because the 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 phenomenon is a cyclical phenomenon. But what you can do is you can shorten and you can um, uh, smooth the transitions. Mm-hmm. So you can make it so that we get better. It, it doesn't feel as anxiety producing and it happens more quickly when we have to shift to a new balance to deal with a value that's been unattended too long. Yeah. Uh, and that if you keep this issue close to the surface, you help create learning and memory that lets you do both those things. This this is a sense in which I think the Catholic uh, Curia had it entirely right um, in the canonization process to have an office of the devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. The notion that there's someone there who is explicitly 
advocating for the opposite point of view, someone who's advocating for the suppressed value. Canonizing this person is a mistake, mm-hmm. and here's why, right? It's also my, I do have an affection for the adversary process, and, you know, and maybe this is part of what makes law appealing to me as a discipline, um, in the Anglo-American tradition at any rate, that there's something healthy about constantly confronting the other argument, hmm. the other value. Right. Thus, oral argument. Thus, oral <laughs> argument. My God, we just, that, you know what? That is a, that is a great name for a podcast, dude. <laughs> You, really, you think you think better than cyberloquium? Totally better. <laughs> oh my god, this has been fantastic. Awesome. Thank uh, you. Thanks for having. Thank me. you for joining us. Oh yeah, and it was it was our pleasure, and Real to, pleasure. to host you uh, on um, episode one of the uh, Krim Kravich series. Right. <laughs> um, there'll be more. There will be more. <laughs> well, um, there's a. There's a reason I'm a blogger rather than a podcaster, which is, this is just what you guys are doing is so much more difficult than, you know, the traditional blogging format. Well, (laughs) (laughs) Um, there's a certain fearlessness to be wrong and to say stupid things um, that, you know, but I think as professors, we certainly have this, right? I mean, I, and I tell my students this all, look, I'm going to say stupid things. Um, (laughs) And that, and I encourage them to talk because you know I think everyone's fear about talking extemporaneously is that you're going to say dumb things mm-hmm. and um and I try to put them at ease by and you telling really them live how, that well I tell them how often <laughs> my family tells me I do dumb things and say dumb things and so they should feel at ease as well um, nothing ventured nothing gained you know? <laughs> so but uh, it, it's absolutely been a pleasure so thank you so thank much thank you it's been my pleasure. <laughs>